Me say we appreciate very much your presence this evening. We're going to discuss in just a moment the greatest sermon ever to fall upon the ears of mankind. The Sermon on the Mount by Jesus our Lord as recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Next Sunday as we announce, we're going to talk about the forgotten invitation and some principles of redemption as found in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, the case of conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. may seem like that it's quite a job of repeating the sermon of the Ethiopian eunuch since we preach on that from time to time, but I think that we've still not untapped all the sources of information that there are in that sermon. And it never grows old to me to study an account like that, to try to glean some new truth from it, and help us to understand what's in it and what's important for our own lives so that we might be able to take the things that are in it and apply it to our life to help us to teach others, and also to make application to our own life. As we study this sermon tonight in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's vitally important that we take the things that are contained in this lesson and apply them to us. In order to understand the principles that are involved, I think it's important that we understand something about the book of Matthew. Matthew records this sermon, and it deals with the very thing that Matthew is trying to get across. Matthew is written to the Jews. The book of Matthew is to provide a transition from those of the old law to the law of Christ. It's a transition from something that was of a temporal and physical nature to a kingdom that was to be of a spiritual nature. In the book of Matthew, you have our Lord presented as prophet, priest, and king. And this is taken from the background of the Old Testament to show how that indeed Christ fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he is that that is the king prophesied in the Old Testament, and it is only through his priesthood that we may approach God. And we need to see Jesus in the book of Matthew as the one who fulfills all that there is in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, twelve times in the book of Matthew, you'll see such language as, it is fulfilled, and this is to denote that Christ is the fulfillment of all that there was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when it closes in the fourth chapter of the book of Malachi, the last word you'll find in your King James or American Standard Bible is the word curse. And that's the shape that the world would have been in had there not been no New Testament. When you come down to the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, you'll find that the curse of sin has been removed, and the last verse of that chapter says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How different is that from the way that the book of Malachi closed? Matthew was trying to bring the Jew from a physical temporal system to understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. Over and over again, if, if I remember correctly, some 54 times in the book of Matthew, you see the term kingdom of heaven used. 
This is to denote the spiritual nature of the kingdom and to try to help the Jews see that the kingdom is spiritual and that they must come up from that which was temporal and physical to enjoy the blessings of that which is spiritual. The Sermon on the Mount is against that background. The Lord is trying to encourage these who are Jews who have been worshiping under a physical temporal system to understand that the very nature of the kingdom of God is that it is spiritual and that the vital thing is not the thing of the outside or outward appearance, but the vital thing is on the inside of a man and the heart of an individual. The Sermon on the Mount is that, therefore, that deals with one's inside. And the Beatitudes that you have recorded in Matthew 5 or against that background. Happy is the man. And that has to do with what is in his heart. The happiness of the Beatitudes is for the individual who has prepared his heart. And it's against that background that when you get down to the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew, you have eight woes to match the eight Beatitudes that you found in Matthew 5. The eight woes are to the Pharisees who have failed to learn the lesson of proper attitude as recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, Jesus said, Woe unto them, and he closes that by saying, How shall you escape the damnation of hell? And in Matthew 25, when you come to the picture of the scene of judgment, it is against the background of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, Blessed is the man that was to enter in. The blessed man who enters into the kingdom of God in Matthew 25 is the one who has taken the attitudes of the beatitudes of Matthew 5 and placed them into his life. His religion has gotten to the inside. It's gotten to his heart. And since it has gotten to the inside to his heart, it caused him to have the proper attitude toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, he begins, as we mentioned, with the Beatitude, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Until a man has a contrite spirit, he'll never be in position to obey God. And so Jesus begins with the attitude of his heart. The poor in heart is the man with a contrite spirit. Part as recorded in Isaiah 56 and verse 2. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the invitation given by our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount in verse, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, our Lord points to the hardness of the narrow way. The word straight, as it's used in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, points to how hard it is. And if anyone tells you that the way is easy, they've missed the whole point of this sermon. Jesus said that straight is the way. And the word straight really means hard pressed. That's what that word literally means. It's hard pressed. And Jesus said that it's a narrow way. It's a compacted way. And the individual who enters into that hard pressed are Narrow way must have the proper attitude of heart. He must be one poor in spirit 
and he must mourn because of his sinfulness. Not only that, he mourns because of the hardness of the white. I think that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The man who has a proper attitude toward sin through the gospel of Christ and the forgiveness of his sins can find comfort. Then he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that is a humble attitude before God, an attitude of humility which will accept the gospel of Christ, the wisdom that is from above that he talks about in the very next verse. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. For you see, it is only a man who is poor in spirit, only a man who is mournful for his sinful condition, and who is meek before God in humility, that will indeed hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he says he'll be filled. And the results of that, realizing the forgiveness of his own sins through obedience unto the gospel, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And it's our attitude towards others by which God judges his attitude towards all. That's what we'll see as the sermon develops. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the only way that one may have purity of heart is through the provisions that are provided in the gospel of Christ. It's through the provisions of the gospel that a soul is washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Thereby he may enjoy the purity that's in Christ. And then he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And it is God's children who will carry out the peace that Jesus Christ brought unto this earth. Jesus came that we might have peace. The announcement was made at his birth, Luke chapter 2, that peace and glad tidings were now on this earth. And through the carrying out of the gospel of Christ, we carry that peace unto others. And then, Jesus said it is because individuals have this attitude that the world takes the wrong attitude towards them. And the eighth beatitude is that that is against the background of the first seven. It's against the background of the purity of heart that is demonstrated in the lives of the children of God that the world rises up in persecution. And Jesus says, Blessed are they when they're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that are before you. When one allows the gospel to so change his life that he takes on on the inside the religion of the Beatitudes, the world will hate him as it hates the Son of God. Jesus announced in John 16 that because they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And it is against that background that he says that the Christian wields the kind of influence that he ought to weigh. One who allows the Beatitudes to be a part of his life will indeed be as a light that's set on a hill. 
He'll be as soft that has not lost its sight. We wonder sometimes why our influence on the lost world is not as it should be. I suggest tonight it's because our Christianity has not gotten down deep to the heart as the Beatitudes would in order to show the world that we are the children of God. Can you imagine what the Lord's church would be like in a universal sense tonight if the church of Christ, every congregation, had the attitude of the Beatitudes? What kind of influence would we have on the lost world? Would there be any problem about one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who wants to be a peacemaker, carrying the peace of Jesus Christ to others? Would that be a problem for us that we face in the church today that we're not converting the lost world? If the attitude of the Beatitude was ours, we'd have the kind of light, the kind of influence that we want to have. We'd have the kind of salt that would bring people under the earth. But he says, if salt is lost, it savors henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast down and trodden under the foot of man. But not only that, our Lord, after giving the beatitude, showing what the result would be in people's lives, that persecution would come, and that from that persecution and the proper attitude Toward that persecution, they'd have an influence on a world that's lost. By the way, that's exactly what took place in the early church. Turn to the book of Acts. Read how they're scattered abroad. And they go everywhere preaching the word upon the persecution that they endure. Then you'll notice that Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I come not to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say to you, Till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot and one tittle shall in no wise pass away from the law until all be fulfilled. Jesus came to live full of the law of Moses, and that's exactly what he did. Had he not done that, he would not have been a fit sacrifice for our sin. But look at the attitude that others had toward the law. Here's the Son of God who has the proper attitude toward the law. And yet he said, Whosoever therefore would break one of these least commandments and teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I say unto you, that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. These people had a religion of show. Their attitude toward the law of God was, let's take our life and make God's law conform to our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus gives and the example that he gives here in Matthew 5. How that they had taken the will of God and they had conformed that to what their lives were. But Jesus in the spiritual law of the new covenant, went far further than what was under the old covenant. Jesus, in giving them the kind of righteousness that they ought to have in their life, something that affected the heart, and thereby getting on the inside, their religion was to change their life. Notice what he said. 
You have heard it was said by them of old. The American Standard Version says it. You have heard it was said court or to them of old. Thou shalt not kill. But whosoever shall kill is in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of the judgment. It was said in the law, thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, the man who is angry with his brother and allows that anger without cause to so enter into his heart, in his imagination, as we talked about a few weeks ago, thereby will kill his brother, as John said in 1 John 4, if we hate our brother, we're murderers. Here's an individual who allows the things of his heart to so influence his life in the direction of his heart. Jesus said that the gospel is intended to get to the heart of a man. You can't take the gospel and stretch that to fit your life. Here were individuals who did not want to consider their brother. Look at the Pharisees and their religion. Was it brother-oriented or was it self-oriented? The evidence of that, the prayer we read in the adult class this morning in Luke 18. That man was not considering his brother. He cared little and nothing for his brother. In Luke 10, you have the story of the Good Samaritan. Did he care for his brother? They passed by on the other side, and it was a Good Samaritan who stopped to render care to the one who was fallen in the ditch, taken a thief. We need to understand that the principles of the Sermon on the Mount are intended to change one's life by getting into one's heart. When the gospel affects one's heart, it affects his relationship with his breath. You place the gospel in one's heart, and he will not look upon a woman to lust after her. Jesus said that the man who has looked on a woman to lust after has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Notice the emphasis that's placed here on the heart. We need to guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of them are the issues of life. He goes on to say in verse 29, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. In other words, is there something standing between you and the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is saying to these individuals, if you find something between you and doing the will of God, you better cut it off. You better pluck it out. Because the most important thing in life is to do God's will. And that gets down to the heart. I think we need to understand that this lesson of our Lord is intended that we do some soul searching. And that we understand that the gospel of Christ is that that must dwell in our heart. How could a man overcome this kind of temptation? Jesus said it is written. It is written. It is written. David said in Psalms 119 verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Then again he said, You have heard it said of them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, and shalt perform unto the Lord thy oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, 
nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, for thou canst not make one hair of thy head, neither black nor white. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Jesus is getting close to home when he starts talking about our speech. The thing that comes out on our tongue is that that comes from our heart. Jesus said that they needed to be careful about their communication. But not only that, he said, you've heard it said to them of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If a man sue thee at law to take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Whosoever compel thee to go one mile, go with him twice. Give unto him that asketh from thee, that him that barred turn not away. And so Jesus is saying that Christianity is that it gets down to the heart of a man, and when it does, it causes him to go the second mile. He has an invincible religion. How far is that from the attitude of the Lord's church today possessed by many Christians when their attitude is, what do I have to do to get by with you? Do I have to do it? Can you not see why Jesus said that straight is the gate and there's the way that leadeth unto life and few are they that find? Christianity is something that overflows from a man's heart. It's a religion of a second mind. Again, notice, he says, Give her that hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemy. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Look at God's attitude toward your enemy, that they may be the children of your fatherhood in heaven, which maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Notice Jesus said, Don't hate your enemy, love it. Why? That they may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For God sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. Read Romans 12 and verse 20 and 21. And he says, Therefore thine may hunger feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on thy head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, when the attitude of the Beatitudes gets into a man's heart, he'll change his relationship with his brethren. He can't hate them. Why? God doesn't hate them. God sent the rain on the just and the unjust. He sent his son down on this earth to die for the ungodly. Do you know who was part of that ungodly? Me. You want to think about sinful man, the only way to think is like that. That's what our Lord said. Then not only that, Jesus said that we need to be careful about how religion affects our life. 
Is our religion something that is for outward show, outward appearance, or has our religion really gotten to our heart? He begins in chapter 6 saying, Take heed that you do not your alms. American standard says righteousness before man to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. How important is it that we serve God because he is God? And that our lives are lived as they are not because of what men think, but because of what God thinks. Jesus illustrates that and says that we need to be careful about our alms. That when we do them, that we don't sound a trumpet as do the hypocrites. To say, look at me, what I'm doing. He said, they have their reward. When thou doest thy alms, do not let thy right hand know what thy left hand doeth. In other words, you do that in secret. Because you want to serve God. And if your attitude is concerned about what others think, then you've already been rewarded for. But our attitudes ought to be what God thinks. That's our being secret. Our Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee open. And then he says, what about your prayer? The important thing about prayer is not when we pray publicly, but when we get off in the closet. When we're alone, how valuable is prayer when we're alone? When there's no one there but me and God, do I still have the flowery phrases that I have in public? Or is my prayer merely vain repetition? Is my prayer an expression of my heart as we read this morning in the adult class in Romans 10, 1? Paul said, my heart's desire, my supplication or my prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Prayer gets down on the inside. And that's why the Lord said, after this manner pray ye. He's not prescribing words that we are to utter. He's prescribing attitudes of heart. Our Father, which art in heaven, is thy reference to the God of heaven. Hallowed be thy name. There's a recognition of his authority, recognition that God's in heaven sitting on his throne ruling over all this universe, and that all that he has, all that we have belongs to him. Thy kingdom come. There's an individual who is in recognition of the importance of the kingdom of God. God planned it. He purposed it. He placed it. He sent his son and it was because of his love for the people of God and for that kingdom that Jesus died on the cross that had purchased it with his own blood. No wonder he goes on to say in this same chapter, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Then he goes on and he says, Thy will be done on us. There's a man who with a passion of life is set to do the will of God. Give us this day our daily bread. Do we recognize our dependence upon God? 
Or do we think that the things that we have are things I've earned? This is one who recognizes that even daily bread, if that comes from God, notice the emphasis there on daily bread. He'll mention that later again. Then he says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. When we pray to God, we have the forgiving attitude. Has the gospel so affected my relationship to others? As I pray for my own forgiveness, based on my forgiveness of others, that I can really utter that prayer. You see, Jesus intended this to get to the heart. He intended that this lesson be one that was for all men who would be willing to accept it. And he goes on and says, Moreover, when you fight, is your fasting before man or is your fasting in the sight of God Almighty himself? Then again in the fourth place, he begins to think about one spiritual prayer. What's important in this life? If you were really to begin to think about what means more in life to you, what would it be? Notice it. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt nor where thieves break through and steal. Over there where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you want to know whether your heart has the attitude to be attitudes or not? I ask you tonight, where's your treasure? Notice Jesus goes on. The light of the body is the eye. If thy whole eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. There's a measure of a man's soul. There's a measure of a man's heart. That's what the Lord intends that we understand. He goes on. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold the one, despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and man. You mark this down. Where your treasure is, there's your trust. Now, where's your trust? Do you have faith in God? Do you believe in God? Do you see God as he really is? Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for the body what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat and the body and right? That's a soul-searching question. What is life to us? Is it meat? Is it raiment? Or our lives live simply to take the things of this earth? Or do we trust God? Christ is not saying that a man's not to work, but he's saying that a man needs to weigh in the balance and see what's important in life. And the important thing in life is to serve God. And when you serve God, you and you place your trust in God, the things of life will become less meaningful. And spiritual things will be primary. They'll consume a man's time because they consume his life. 
It's important that we take care of our family. It's important that we raise our children. That's a part of spirituality, by the way. But we need to understand and we need to see that the man who deems God first will serve God primarily. And all other things will be secondary. He chides them for their anxious care. Do we have problems in life? Do the anxieties of life bother us? The one who takes the attitude of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, places that in his life, sees God as he really is enthroned, prays in accordance to that prayer with the attitudes of that prayer as given here in Matthew 6, understands the true nature of God. And through his faith and trust in God, the things that bother him about this earth no longer bother I like the American Standard reading of this passage because in the American Standard where the King James says, for instance, in verse 26, and why take ye thought for raiment? says, why are you anxious? Really, that's what the Lord's getting to. Why are we anxious? Why do we concern ourselves so about the things of this earth? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, and neither do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Behold the fowls of the air, how they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet I say unto you, your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Now, he's not saying you need to quit work, but he's saying that we need to recognize what's primary and what's secondary. And the man that does that is the man who through faith understands that God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is in the oven. And how much more shall he clothe us? See God's care and concern for him. He said, this man will seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness or his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto him. I want to ask you a soul-searching question tonight. Where do you deem security? Is security in the kingdom of God? Is security with spiritual things or security with the things of this earth? Jesus said the man who trusts God, hand in hand with God, is secure. There's no reason to be anxious. He closes this chapter by saying, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take thought for itself. Sufficient. Under the days evil thereof. Then beginning in the very next chapter, he talks about again our relationship with our neighbor. And he says, the man who has a proper relationship with his neighbor is not to judge his neighbor by unrighteous judgment. Judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you again. We need to see our neighbor as we are. How are we before God? If we see our neighbor 
with frailties and weaknesses in life like us, won't our light towards our neighbor be different? To understand that he, like me, stands before God unholy, undone, and without the blood of Christ, there's no approach to the throne of God, but it's only by that blood offered once and for all in his sacrifice on the cross and my contacting that blood through my obedience to it and walking in the light that I can approach the throne of the God of heaven. And then he goes on to say, Give not that which is holy unto dark, Neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample you under their feet and turn again, and they should rest. We need to consider what's important. And we need to consider the things that really matter in life. And then he says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And the man who understands the true nature of God understand that God's not going to give him something that he does not need. That God will take care of those who serve him with the attitude of the beatitude. And because of that, there's no need for us to have anxious care. And to understand that is to understand that we need to have the attitude of God towards others. Now that's what he's getting to. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye also unto them. For this is the law and the prophet. And the man who has that attitude, that is a direct result of the attitude of the beatitude, 